Radcliffe, it can only mean one thing that we have reached the end of the season. Yay. Time. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Oh, it's too bad that we finished the season already. But the good thing is is that in another week we got another season. So Yeah. There we, we got go. A big one. Yeah. We got a big one, season four. But season three was fun. I really enjoyed season three, and um, and yeah, quite a quite a difficult task you set for today to kind of pull all these threads together from blockchain to kids and kids IBM and, and mental health and regulation. Yeah, <laughs> where do we start? Should we, we start were, with what happened last month. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. We were all over the place in the podcast season, and we were all over the place when it comes to the world circumstances. And I know that you want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, the chaos and the craziness that is the US government. And wow, that's all I can say. So here's the thing, Dee. We, we, we first spoke about a year ago, yeah? And I had just written my white paper on digital ethics with um, my friend Dick. Um, and, you know, we try to imagine all the sorts of things that might go wrong. And, you know, I think those of us who are close to the subject, are, you know, have a pretty healthy imagination for what might go wrong when mm. tech is not regulated and tech is not controlled and people who are in the tech industry are looking at only what's in the interests of their platforms and not in the interests of wider society. So, you know, I'm no, I'm no stranger to, to the, to the, the, the ideas of what might go wrong. But a year mm -hmm. ago, if, if you had said to me, a year from now, we would be having a conversation on the other side of a failed revolution in the United States caused by fake news and social media, I would have told you you've been smoking some mushrooms. Um, <laughs> but here we are, a month after a failed revolution in the United States. And when I think about the United States, I think of you know, freedom of speech and democracy are like the two things that come into mind. You know, I, I imagine, you know, the Empire State Building, um, you know, the Statue of Liberty, the Golden Gate Bridge, yeah. the beautiful natural resources you've got um, in the US. <laughs> um, but the, the idea of democracy and freedom of speech are the two things. And then, of course, the US is also the, the cradle of the tech industry, really. And social media is born out of the United States. And so how on earth has this gone so badly wrong? And mm. um, and I think the danger we have, I think this is called the Overton window, that says that when we, our discourse is always stuck between, you know, extremes that we think are likely or extremes that we think are, you know, acceptable things to talk about. And right now we've had this, you know, this, this unbelievable event in the United States with the storm, storming of the Capitol last month. Um, and I guess my worry is, is if we think that, well, that's like just gone slightly over the edge in terms of that. Yeah, that's, that was just a one-off event. That was just a blip. That was just something that happened yeah, once. Was it though? Um, as opposed to something which actually we are susceptible for across society, across the world in all democracies. And so we've mm -hmm. really got to get a grip of this stuff, this data and AI and tech and how we get some controls in place before it gets really badly out of hand. Hmm. It's well put. I think the idea around this is something that happens occasionally in different countries. You have people that overthrow the government 
but in the US is has that ever happened will that ever happen and will social media and algorithms be a part of that narrative it's really crazy to me so i'm 100% with you like we need to figure out what's going on and i am in the camp of like just banning trump from twitter is not going to help that's like a band-aid solution right but we need to look at a holistic and realistic view of what and why that happened what is this stemming from yeah so i think i think the issue i have with banning trump from twitter is um is not is not the decision that's been made i guess this is my criticism of the tech industry throughout and has always been my criticism and which is really the basis of what ethics grade uh, the firm that I run um, uh, uh, is is all about is these decisions need to be made um, through rigorous means. These decisions need to be made um, in accordance with governance that's well understood and um, can be challenged and can be improved and updated. And it strikes me that um, the decisions to remove the president from, um, from from the various social media platforms were kind of shoot from the hip responses to something that had gone that had happened, as opposed to um, the, the well thought out, um, uh, you know, sort of machinery of governance that should exist in these firms. And you know, in the case of maybe some firms, uh, let's say you know, Twitter, they don't really have necessarily sophisticated governance around around these questions as you know they have you know terms and conditions they have community policies they have all of those things um but they obviously realize that that's not um maybe not enough uh and so they've had to kind of override um uh you know override these things from time to time and improve them and update them but in facebook's case facebook has spent 120 million dollars on building an oversight structure um, uh, which is a colossal amount of money, $120 yeah. million dollars of building this Supreme Court for Facebook. And they, they've only put it to use in reviewing the decision that's been made to remove the president. They, they didn't consult the oversight board, it seems, uh, in making that decision. And I think this is the, um, this is the greatest challenge. And I think uh, there's going to be some urgency now. Um, and I think this is a really interesting year. We're seeing regulation. We had Tom's episode um, m- most recently. Um, we, we're now starting to see the regulation coming out of the EU um, and the, the AI regulation we're expecting to see in April, if it doesn't get leaked earlier. Mm. Um, and um, I think we're also going to see now tech companies fall over themselves in terms of putting governance in place. And hopefully... Um, that governance will be, you know, complete and well thought out, and uh, and it will start to be, you know, addressing some of these questions. But we're like, you know, so many years too late on this. It's it's really devastating, and so I, and I hope the capital rights are a low point here. I I really do. Um, but but I think we should be um, we should be on guard. And just just before we move on from this, um, it's really interesting. You know, obviously we saw that in in the United States, and that was going kind to of really fueled by disinformation, misinformation, mm-hmm. fake news. Um, uh, and a platform which, or not just a platform, but multiple platforms which thrive on controversy and things being, you know, going viral. Uh, whereas what we've seen in in Myanmar is um, obviously a military coup, which is a, a, a different regime change scenario. Yeah. But we've seen them block 
um, tech, I think, um, you know, it probably very much with in mind seeing what's happening in the United States and realizing, well, if if um, we allow you know, WhatsApp and Facebook and, and these platforms mm. to be mediums by which people, ordinary people can mobilize um, and organize, then actually that could bring about a regime change. So we've seen tech be blocked and obviously the internet being cut off in, in Myanmar. Um, and then just yesterday, so probably this will be a week, a week old news by the time people listen to this episode. But in China, we've seen now China block the BBC World Service. Um, I think that was announced today. Um, you know, happy Chinese New Year to Chinese listeners. <laughs> it is Chinese New Year today as we're, as, we're, as we're recording this. But I think this is just a whole nexus we've got to really get into. I think we need to have maybe a season dedicated to misinformation and fake news because, mm. um, you know, this is, a, this is a battleground. And to a point we spoke about last year, I said that um, my prediction for this 10 years was this, this decade would be a decade where how we regulate human activity, our democratic model, or, or rather our political model, whether it's democracy or authoritarian, what wins out, this will be the key battleground and, and tech will play a role in that. And, you know, I think you kind of said, well, that's a big prediction. Yeah. And I think what happened last month is just another, another, another set of breadcrumbs that lead us down in that, down that trail. The tip of the iceberg, man. Now I'm starting to think that prediction wasn't so crazy and I'm seeing your foresight. And I didn't predict the capital rights though. I mean, that, that was crazy. That was crazy. That's um, wild. Well, I think there's two really interesting points that you bring up and then we can close with this topic. One is there's not really preemptive solutions being thrown around. It's normally reactive when shit hits the fan, it's reactive. It's not preemptive like, oh, we saw this coming and here's the steps that we took against it, but it still wasn't enough because we weren't able to see this part, right? Uh, it's just like, oh no, something really bad happened. We better do things. And that's where I, I feel like, uh, and of course, if we talk to anybody that's working at Twitter or Facebook or wherever uh, these manipulation campaigns are happening, they'll probably argue that there's a lot being done and they're trying their best. They're trying their darndest and they're doing the preemptive stuff, but they didn't realize that it could be taken so far. And Yeah, but that's that's like people working cigarette companies saying we're trying to make our products you know, kill people less or make them slightly less addictive. It's like Really? <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just don't buy that because the the way the business model, um, you know, w what we need is is I think to really believe that we need to see um, one of the big tech companies, you know, really start to wind back um, some of their business models because it's the business model that's the problem. I think Shay made that point mm. in in his recording with you that yeah. it's it's that that's the problem and. Um, uh, and I and I wonder whether actually the change is not going to come from regulation, but the change is going to come from ordinary people who are just going to insist on that and vote with their vote with their feet or vote with their um, who their account is held with. And we've still seen obviously a mass exodus from WhatsApp to some of the other um, secure messaging platforms mm -hmm. in the last month. Um, you know whether that becomes an existential problem for WhatsApp or not, we'll see. Um, but obviously, what's what a platform like WhatsApp does need is liquidity. You need to have 
lots of people on that platform. Otherwise, the value the, the value becomes nothing again. So um, one of the things I think um, you spoke about with Tom was about interoperability. Uh -huh. um, and I think that's the key weapon. Um, uh, if there's any policymakers listening to this, then if we can force some of these platforms to be more interoperable, interoperatable, I'm not sure what the word is there, but if we can force them to to help people migrate their their um, their accounts, their their content from platform to platform, and if we can enshrine that into law, then actually it becomes, I think, a much better market for maybe some organizations who are a little bit more ethical or those who are a little bit more on the commercial end uh, to, uh, to, to fight it out. And I think, I think ordinary people would vote with their accounts. Right now, it's really hard. You know, if you terminate your WhatsApp account, not that I have one, uh, and that, that itself is quite hard, not having a WhatsApp account in 2021. But um, if you terminate your account with one of these platforms, um, you know, it, it's very hard to then pick up with someone else. Yeah. And like we've seen, I'm sure, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but if you wanted one, I can't remember which VR set it is. Is it the, uh, the Oculus? If you want to use that, you have to have a Facebook account. Yeah. Well, funny, funny you should mention that. Um, so I was pretty upset <laughs> when I read the, I, I, I switched on my Oculus and it said, I'm sorry, you've got an Oculus uh, account ID and it, won't, it simply won't work after this date. To be mm. fair, the date is, you know, March 2022. So I've got another, you know, 13 months left of my Oculus functioning. <laughs> um, but um, I, I thought about it and I, I actually, um, I wrote to the company I bought it from and I said, I'm so sorry, this, I, this isn't really your fault, but my Oculus is going to cease working in 13 months because I refuse to have an account with Facebook. Um, can I have my money back, please? Mm. And, and, and their response was, um, your warranty will have expired by the time um, that change is invoked. So, no. Oh, no. Um, so I've actually taken it up with my credit card company and it's going to be really fun to see how this plays out. <laughs> um, I had a situation, I know I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I, 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 I wrote... Um, I write for Forbes occasionally, and I, I wrote an article a year or so ago about the Netcam, which was a, um, a, a Belkin product. And the, net, the Netcam is like a home security uh, CCTV uh, device. Um, and um, I bought two of them when they came out in 2014. They're great little products. Um, you know, you connect them to the Wi-Fi, connect them to the app, and boom, you've got a you've got a home security system, you know, in a box. Um, um, and it's worked really well for, you know, six years. And then what happened last year is that Belkin uh, wrote an email to all of their customers saying, oh, um, yeah, we've, we've updated the firmware so you can no longer access the device and connect it to any third-party software. Um, um, actually, that had happened maybe a year or so, or year two beforehand. Um, but we've now switched off the cloud service, which um, is, your, your product is now is tied to. Um, and so, um, so it will no longer work. Your, your, your little bit of plastic and glass and electronics will cease to function on this date. Um, I read an article for Forbes saying, you know, this was just uh, an absolutely abysmal way to treat uh, customers um, because ultimately it stemmed from this firmware update. Before the firmware update was made, then you could find other workarounds to mm. still use your your camera. Yeah. Um, but because they, and I suggested to Belkin that they might want to reverse the firmware update or at least put some other firmware in place so that people could switch to a different cloud provider or people could build a community service or some other way of keeping mm -hmm. these products alive. 
And I think this is a real challenge, um, you know, from a product liability perspective, when you, or product warranty perspective, you buy a product and it, it will last as long as it lasts. You know, I've got electronics gear here, which is, you know, um, a few years old and it's and it's broken and that's just wear and tear. I've got other mm -hmm. stuff which is really old and it's still, in fu still functioning. But I think wear and tear, stuff which kind of has reached the end of its, of its life, we can understand from a kind of design uh, hardware perspective, but what I can't understand so so easily is um, when a product, when a manufacturer turns around and says, "Yeah, we 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 for whatever reason, we're going to switch off the service that that product relies on." And you know, imagine if Amazon did that with Alexa. Imagine if Amazon said, "Oh yeah, sorry, we've decided to terminate the Alexa service. So as of a week next Friday, your Amazon Alexa will just be a very expensive paperweight." Um, you know, we've seen companies do that. Sonos have done that, backtrack from it. Belkin have done that. Um, and, you know, what, what Facebook are doing with Oculus, I think is a really interesting ethics problem um, because they're forcing users to be more tied into their platform. And what are, what are they giving them in, in return? The option of nothing. You know, there's, you, uh -huh. you, you either sign up for your Facebook account or you don't have a product that works anymore. And I think we're going to see a few more examples of that over the next few years. And I think we're going to see... I think we're definitely going to see some regulation on that. So I think we might see a few test cases. I'm not suggesting that my case will be a test case, but I, 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 I'm fully expecting to get my money back. Um, so you're going to have watch to watch out American know. Express. Yeah. Well, in the next recap, you can tell us if How the money came through. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's an interesting problem. And I know there's a lot of outcry about that. And it, it, it goes back to what you were talking about this interoperability and the ability to not be locked in mm. and not have to have the choices be made for you because that's really what's happening. We're not given a choice. It's just you do this or you don't get to play in the game. So yeah. there's a really interesting battle going on here. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I was going to mention about what you were talking about, and I know I said we would be done with this topic <laughs> five minutes ago. So the other thing is the cutting off of technology for a coup, like you were talking about what's happening in Myanmar right now, right? And so it seems like we have to find this balance in between because if we have it, as the wild, wild west, then you get what happens in the US. And if you have it where you cut it off and you're seeing people realizing that, hey, we don't want the, the public to unite, we're just going to cut it off, then it also creates a, a horrible situation. Mm -hmm. So you can't live with it, you can't live without it, really, is where we're at. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think... Um... I think those are, uh, I, I kind of put some faith here in, in democratic processes and, and discourse, but I think those are the questions we need to have a much more rigorous debate um, about across society. I mean, in many respects, that's why we have a Slack channel to try and, um, you know, start to build a community and to have a discourse on this. So, I mean, I hope, I hope this conversation might, might provoke a, a discussion on our Are You a Robot Slack channel. That's it. Um, and for everybody that's not on there, jump in there. The links are below. Thank you. Um, 
professional there, Demetrius. You just, and uh, while we're at you it, the cues, you get the cues, and <laughs> you like while it. we're at it, smash the like button, share with your friends, all that good stuff. Leave a good review. Yeah, um, leave a review on the you. iTunes or podcasts, yeah. all of um, that. But but in all seriousness, that's that's why we have uh, a community because what we what we really want to do is to create a forum for people to to share these their views and to 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 have some discourse on, on these questions and i think you know there's a question here is is um is is universal access to the internet is that a um is is that a human right um in 2021 and and if it is um then um what guardrails um are acceptable uh and and proper to be put there to make sure that populations are not um, manipulated um, and, you know, if people have seen The Social Dilemma, we had an episode, I think, season one or season two, Zachary Loeb. Um, you know, there's, um, there's, there's, there's a growing community of people who are very concerned that we are all manipulated uh, in some degree online. Um, and, um, and I think that's the, that's the challenge with universal um, uh, internet access, is if you, have, if you subscribe to the view that everyone should have access to everything, then, well, yeah, that can go wrong. Um, but equally, if we um, if we try to restrict content like we've seen happening in China, um, I think that's also quite unpalatable, uh, particularly for those of us in the West who who, who um, respect um, you know uh, values such as freedom of speech or freedom of individual expression more. So I think I think this is a key debate which we need to have and. It's because it's messy. I see politicians um, shy away from it, and um, and, I, and I think that's a great, great shame. We 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 really urgently need a debate on these questions. And you know, the internet's now in its thirtieth year. Um, uh, sorry, the, the World Wide Web is in its thirtieth year. I, I always I always make that mistake. That's a that's a rookie mistake. <laughs> the internet is not um, well. It's just, it's, it's, I read about Myanmar. Is that a lot of people in Myanmar think that Facebook is the same as the internet? When you talk about the internet, oh, wow. you talk about Facebook. The two things are synonymous. And uh, oh, wow. you know, obviously, when we talk about the web, we think about the web. The web and the internet are almost synonymous, but they're, but they're really not. It's two different things. So, the web is thirty years old this year. I think in November. Um, I wonder if we can get Tim Berners-Lee on the show. Um, That's it. Uh, Let's do it. That would, be, that would be cool, wouldn't it? That would be amazing. Um, is it 30 years old? 32 years old this year. Uh, what, what's, what if, I might be wrong, actually. I might be wrong. It might not be 30 years old. It might <laughs> we'll be fact check that. Something else we should fact check. All right. So let me just stop right there real fast. It turns out we did some fact checking and Charles was a little bit off. It's not the 30th anniversary of the internet it is the 30th anniversary of linux so just wanted to correct that and clear that up and now let's jump back into the conversation the note, notes notes to the production team always fact check charles he's talking he's not 30 years old i think it's 1969 <laughs> came out but but something is 30 years old this year i'll determine to find out and <laughs> let everyone know but um but the point is that um you know we uh you know we we're too far down some of these roads without the right controls in place. And we're not actively designing the future. I guess that's my, my real point here is that when we, you know, those of us who were using the web in the 90s were, were very much optimistic about the future and so we had these utopian views as to what the future might be look like. And this idea of universal free access to information was just such yeah. a bold, rich idea. And I, so few of us saw the, the downsides of this, but now it's so abundantly clear where this could go wrong it's yeah. there's an urgency um 
So anyway, let's get back to the season. Well, we had, wait, we big season. Wait, my question for you is, is access to the internet a basic right that humans have? <clears throat> yes. Um, not often do you get a straight answer from me, so um, I'll, I'll surprise you with one for a change. Yes, I think it is a universal human right and we should treat it as such. Um, but, but obviously we have institutions, that's, you know, really what, um, you know, institutions like, um, uh, you know, the United Nations, you know, try to reach resolutions on that there is a kind of global multicultural, uh, you know, um, agreement on these things. Um, and I think it's fair to say that with Russia and China um, and some other countries having a slightly different stance on this, it's very unlikely that we'll see uh, that viewpoint represented at an international law level, but you know, my my personal view is that you know, that that is a desirable outcome. But at the same time, we need to we need to put some controls in place. And you know, you know, the Chinese obviously censor uh, a significant chunk of what is transmitted um, because they're putting the security of their state above all other interests. Um, I bet there's a few people in Washington that. I wished <laughs> the United States had done the same thing um, a few weeks ago. Um, so um, you, you know, the, I think that the, the, we—that's the debate. Really, is not whether my my personal view. Um, the debate isn't whether um, we shouldn't treat universal internet access as, as a human right, but the debate should really be about where is, where should the appropriate safeguards be, and how do we um, how do we how do we how do we enable them. Um, well, along a, those lines, question. yeah, I think this is a great one to jump into in the season. You know, we talked a bit, a theme that kept coming up was transparency. Mm -hmm. And I know you had a few words that you wanted to comment on about that. Yeah, well, I think, I think the, um, uh, there, there, were, there were two episodes that really stuck out this season um, because they were so uplifting. Um, the episode with with Hannah Ballard um, about the work that's been done in Canada with um, with with enabling children to understand tech. Mm -hmm. um, um, Education. I mean, yeah, I think certainly as a parent, um, you know that that struck a chord very strongly. Um, um, and I think what was what was so interesting about that episode was um, two things. I mean, firstly. Um, how um, they, uh, you know, how, how they're trying to teach kids um, that when they're interacting with a machine, they're interacting with something which is, you know, programmed, and it's not some, you know, adult sitting behind it pulling the strings, mm -hmm. uh, and it's also not some living thing. It's um, you know, I, I find it quite amazing. I, um, despite my anti-tech stance, I do have a few Amazon yeah. Alexa devices scattered through the house. So they're not what called Alexa devices, yeah. are they? Called, they're called Echoes, aren't they? But, yeah. um, I've got them. I've got them scattered through the house. One of them is in the bathroom, um, which is a really useful place. I find, to, you know, <laughs> when you're in the shower, <laughs> sitting on the john. Yeah. Well, not in the shower, but I sit on the john and say, "Hey, you know, what's the weather today?" And you know, that, that, that's where you actually need, you know, a hygienic, uh, hygienic tech. It's you know, not something you can touch that, that you're going to spread germs from from person to person, you know. Uh, but something you can talk to. So I think it's a, the best place for Alexa is in the bathroom. Not sure Amazon are going to put that into the marketing campaign. But, um, <laughs> what I find funny is, um, you know, if I ever uh, talk to it and um, uh, the kids are in the bath, um, uh, particularly my youngest son, who's just coming 
uh, turning one year old now, is the sort of the confusion, fear, uh, delight, depending on, on the day of the week, the emotional response to having this voice from above um, <laughs> uh, built into the ceiling. Um, and I just find that fascinating. So I really do wonder, I, I watch my son with great curiosity as to what does he think that is? Does he think that someone's living in our loft with a little hole and speaking through it? Or is it magic? Or is, yeah, I, I just really, so I think that's something which Hannah's work is really touching on is to teach kids about, you know, what actually these things are and also to, to teach them that they're infallible. Yeah. Um, and I think transparency there is obviously a key theme. Um, you also touched on this with, um, with Anne Gael from IBM. Um, by the way, I think we did really well this season to get um, Anne Gael from IBM on, on board. Amazing, I mean, IBM is the, the granddaddy of, of, of tech companies. And, um, you know, she did, I should say a kind of big shout out to, to her and to IBM. I think the one thing I really loved about that interview was how real it was. Mm. You, what you didn't get was an hour of corporate BS. You got yeah. an hour of somebody who's in a very senior position in a company um, telling it how it is, warts and all. Um, and I, I thought that was a very, a very, very good interview. Uh, and it's very refreshing interview, uh, hearing a kind of a, such an honest take. But I think also maybe that is IBM to its core. Is it's, um, it's a different type of tech company to yeah. some of the others. Um, allow, anyway, and, and also a bit of a side. You know, we send all of these recordings to the guests, and we ask if they want anything taken out. And so she could have said something. And said, "Oh, I don't want that in there." But it, like you said, yeah. she was very transparent. And having having listened to one of your most recent episodes, where the whole episode is probably going to get taken out, <laughs> it <laughs> is quite a risk, I guess. But that's another story. Um, that's that's a, one for the Slack that's channel. For another <laughs> recap moment, we'll have to that's, dedicate that's, a whole recap to that one. Um, so, but but the um, the point I was going to make about transparency in IBM there was uh, you, you said I think it was a comment that you had with Seb, uh, um, and you, you you raised it with Anne. Um, which was how we are so conditioned to look when, when a machine gives us an answer. You know, we use a calculator, it always gives us yeah. the right answer. And we use a computer and, you know, we're so conditioned to machines. You know, they are mechanical, ultimately, uh, they're mechanical, they're you know, obviously electrical, um, you know, transistor-based devices, but we, we conceive of them as mechanical things. So if you pull the lever, it will always do this, it will always yeah. do that. And what's really interesting about machine learning is that obviously the... It's, it's, it's much more probabilistic and, you know, a tiny change in data or another variable can have a, a you know, a massive uh, change in outcome. And obviously, when a machine says that this picture is a cat or this picture is a dog, it's not a definitive response from the machine. It's only reached above a, a probabilistic threshold. Yeah. And obviously, engineers, this is the kind of magic, really. When you talk to Alexa, as they've tuned that so well. Um, so that it, it, it nine times out of ten it is, or more than nine times out of yeah, ten, it feels you know, real. Yeah, um, but the problem is when the machine does make a mistake, um, it's 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 so natural, like perhaps, for a human to still follow what the machine is saying. Yeah, we don't want to believe it. Fact. Well, because we're used to if a machine can do it, it's right. Especially like if it's a computer if it can do something like a calculator, right? And I punch in the craziest formula that I can think of and it's going to spit something out and it's going to spit out the right answer 
or it's going to spit out yeah. what I uh, what I asked for. Maybe if it's the wrong answer, it's because the problem was in me punching that in to the calculator, not because the calculator doesn't know how to do the arithmetic. And so we're so used to that. If a machine can do it, it's going to do it correctly. That now all of a sudden the machine is doing it, but it's not always correct is really hard for us to wrap our heads around. And yeah. that is such a important point. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about with Hannah Ballard. That is a huge piece that people need to understand, especially when it comes to machine learning and AI, that it's not always correct like we're used to having. Totally. Talking about human talk, talking about calculators, Dee, I wanted to ask you: um, Are you a human calculator? In some way, no. are you some sort of? You, you sure? Not. Are you sure you haven't got some like inner magical? <laughs> there was this wonderful bit in the interview with you and Anne when you were like, you know, um, yeah, you ask a machine like what the square root of uh, five hundred and seventy-six is, and it, you know, it gives you the answer straight away. And as I was listening, I was like, did that number come into his head, or did he know that's the square of twenty-four? <laughs> um, <laughs> of all the numbers you could have picked, you actually picked a square number. Was uh, that deliberate or was that no? Just that was luck? total fluke. I that wish was, it was deliberate, but I am. I not actually double. That smart. I double checked it. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's a square number. Let me just double check. Twenty four times twenty four is five hundred seventy six. Oh man, I had that's no idea until you told me right now. <laughs> and yeah, so. well, it was just I was channeling the inner square root power, you know, letting it all come out on so, the show. It's your, secret, it's your secret skill, your magic power. My, I'm, a, um, <laughs> I'm a square root shaman but, on but my this is off the thing. time. This is the problem. Like you, you said, um, you know, square 576 and, and I thought about it and so, yeah, that's the square number, I'm sure it is. And then, mm. But I, I double checked it. I double checked it. With, obviously with a machine, yeah. with a calculator or the Microsoft Windows version of one. And... Um, yeah, we're so used to just taking those answers for red, and then actually, when um, when and, and this is the problem with machine learning, we have to make sure that we understand these things are fallible, and they are mm -hmm. only ever probabilistically uh, responding to us, and 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 therein lies lies the problem. Um, and then with with Shay, um, you, you know, it's a very similar conversation about bias and and how, um, and I think this is something which um, many people will be horrified to hear but you know I, I, I feel it's so important to labor this point that um, quite often even in a, an algorithm where it shouldn't matter um, uh, you know like like performance I think it was performance of teachers was was the mm -hmm. example he gave if you change the name of the teacher from John to Jane uh, then it can actually the algorithmic score that it might assign to how that teacher's feedback has been received might change because yeah. of the gender and 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 it's things like that which are obviously um you know very 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 impactful um and um, we've got to make sure that we've got the right controls in place to weed out yeah and the more you dig into this the more you realize that this it's this is very very hair hairy or hairball on so many levels. The bias is just baked into so many different pieces of this puzzle. And like, I think what Shay is doing with these audits and going through a checklist and what he proposed 
people do like when they're creating these models is incredible you know having a framework knowing that all right this is going to be something that we need to consider we so when we design it we're not just designing for the best results but we also want to design for these ethical questions that may come up so i thought yeah man shay was incredible to interview and the first thing he said was probably for me the most impacting and it started the tone where it set set us off on the right foot because i saw a few days before i interviewed him i saw something uh, that amazon had come out with and it was like you can it's like i can't remember if it's an api or if it's an actual service that you can hit that service with your algorithm and it will tell you if it's bias right and so automatically when i'm talking to shay and i'm like oh this is a great way to think about it shay is is it going to be at some point where we can just let algorithms decide if other algorithms are biased and or if we can let the algorithm audit the other algorithm right uh without getting too meta on you <laughs> but he was like, yeah, that's definitely doable. But first we got to know what exactly we're going for. We don't have the, the, it's a moving target right now. And we don't have like a true North. We don't know how to audit these really well so that there's no bias involved. And even humans are struggling doing it. So how can you think that a computer can go ahead and, and grapple with these questions that are much less of black and white like oh yes it's it's this or it's that because that's really what i think is the difficult part of it it's not like clear-cut answers that we're yeah. dealing with but i think i think herein lies a, the deeper ethical challenge around this which is um you know amazon doing this and microsoft doing this and google doing this and, and the other cloud platforms doing this it, on the face of it, it it seems like oh what a great idea well done guys and girls you know you've 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 built an audit capability it's like a, a spell check um you've built a kind of the the algorithmic equivalent of a spell check so well done but yeah. the challenge is these platforms providing audit services themselves there is an implicit conflict of interest around that and so it's a bit of kind of marking one's own homework in a way um and so uh, Shay and I are both members of a group uh, called For Humanity, which is a community of contributors to a, an AI audit um, initiative. And I think I'm right in saying, please fact check this team, um, <laughs> production team. I think it, I'm right in saying it's the largest AI audit, um, most detailed AI audit um, currently out there. And, and I think we've achieved that because it's a cloud, uh, a crowd, not cloud sourced, crowd sourced initiative. Um, and um, Ryan Carrier, who we're going to have um, on the show later later on, um, not today, but another day, mm. um, he wrote a very uh, good letter to, um, um, to, 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 to uh, I think it was Sundar um, Pichai at, um, at Google, who he basically said, look, guys, you know, if you want to be in the business of auditing, then you've got you've to you've then stop being in the business of doing machine learning you can't you can't do both and mm -hmm. you know the, it, we've learned that the hard way in the financial industry we've we've learned this because things have gone badly wrong people have been ripped off people have lost their money there have been bad investments banks have gone bust we've had to bail them out we've learned all this the hard way 
please learn from my lessons and realize if you want to be in the audit business, um, that has to be independent. And Shay did make this point, you know, independent third party audit is what's important. And it's, it's that, those are the crucial things. Otherwise, um, you know, it's like having your cousin Joey do your car safety test. It's like, well, it's really? also, yeah, it reminds me of, I was talking to someone who was uh, creating certifications and he said that if you are the one who writes the exam, you cannot be the one who gives the course, who creates the course, because otherwise yeah. you're just going to create a course that is going to teach you how to pass the exam. Yeah. So, exactly. And that's one of the things we, we're very sensitive of at Ethics Grade is we, you know, we're, we're, we're rating companies on, on the quality of their governance. And uh, this episode won't quite go out live before we publish our first data, but... Um, Maybe a few weeks after people hear this for the first time, um, we will be there'll be real data on our website, so you can see, you know, like a credit score, you can see how tech companies and non-tech companies that do tech uh, perform on these things, um, and that's based on a, a, a public model. But we uh, we've got to be really careful that we don't, at the same time, provide you know the consulting services to organisations to. Uh, to fix that, to remediate their scores, mm. to improve those yeah. things, and then also do the ratings. Otherwise, we're simply marking our own homework. And yep. um, by the same token, you know, we um, are licensing the uh, AI audit from For Humanity, and that needs to be entirely separate from our ratings uh, capability. And I think it's really important that as an auditor providing that audit service, and Shay and I, we have, I guess, a, a bit of an overlap between what we do, but um, we're coming at this, I think, from from quite different angles. So we're, it's it's a small community, and I think we're all we're all we're all friends more than um, competitive, which is which is good. So I'd highly recommend his firm. Um, but um, it's really important that we're auditing against a third party standard, and we're not auditing against our own standards. Mm. And I think this is something which um, which is going to become more important. And, and for people who are listening, who are not necessarily, um, you know, uh, so close to the detail in terms of developing AI systems or, or, uh, or maybe marketing AI systems, um, you know, this is a really critical distinction. You know, when, by and large, when I say by and large, because there's always... <laughs> There's always the odd exception, but by and large, when you see a company publish its financial results, when you see that you know, a company has, you know, like Apple has sold X million iPhones and therefore its revenue was, you know, Y, or in Apple's case, billion dollars, um, you can be confident that that number wasn't, you know, just, you know, Tim Cook dreaming it up because it sounded nice and it sounded in line with what he said three months ago. You know, you can be confident that that's actually what really happens. And why can you be confident? Not because Apple is trustworthy necessarily. Um, it is, I think. Um, but also because the corporate governance that exists around Apple is trustworthy. And I think that's really why you can trust Apple. But also the, uh, the rest of the infrastructure of trust, as Shay put it, is in place. And that we have third-party auditors. And for a public company like Apple, um, its accounts have to be publicly audited. And um, by a third party. And, and it's that infrastructure of trust, which means that we can be really confident that when you invest in Apple, when you buy Apple shares, you can have confidence that they really did sell what they sold and, and not just a made-up number. And we need the same thing from, from an algorithmic perspective, so that when machines exactly. are making decisions on our behalf and we're choosing you know, a one smartphone provider over another smartphone provider or one self-driving car over another self-driving car, we can have confidence in the 
and the governance that goes into it. And ultimately, we can be confident that, you know, the, the algorithms are not racist, they're not biased, or if they are, that the firm in question has got the right controls in place to address those things in the appropriate way as quickly as possible. And, and, and those are the things that we are missing today still. Yeah. Yeah, and one little last part about if they are, that we're notified of that, right? Like that at least yeah. we're told that this, hey, this has been shown to have had bias in XYZ. Uh, yeah. Goes back to the transparency. And that's something which... I, I think that's not so far-fetched to think though, that we might get into a place where we we start to see um, firms try to put right um, mistakes that were caused by algorithms, you know, weeks, months, years ago. And we see that in the financial industry. I mean, I'm from the financial industry and I think the benefit of working in such a highly regulated space is you you can kind of see the analogies from, from that to other places. So, you know, for example, I, there was a, I used to run a data analytics company many years ago, um, which I'm no longer involved in, but um, an anecdote I can give you from from those days, and I think we may have even spoken about this when you and I did our first um, um, MLOps podcast uh, all that time ago, um, was we had a a credit card company as a client, and the credit card company, um, they had sent out statements to customers, um, you know, as they do, uh, (laughs) as we both know. And um, and it, they had a customer, and I think the story went that they, they sent out these credit card statements to this guy who had obviously a bit too much time on his hands. Um, and he had sat down and and gone through uh, with a spreadsheet and calculated what he thought the interest should have been. And it was different to what they thought the interest should have been. And I think quite innocently, he wrote to them and said, hey, I think you've kind of overcharged me by like, you know, £3.50. I don't think it was a huge amount of money. It was the principal. And um, the, the mistake they made was not like jumping on it and responding straight away. I mean, if they'd done that and they would probably save themselves from what happened next. But what happened next was they didn't respond on time. He took it to the financial uh, ombudsman service and they came in and said, well, you know, you need to investigate this. And then they investigated it. And then they discovered there was a problem with the calculation that they had for interest. And so what they had to do and this was, as you can imagine, extraordinarily expensive for, for that firm. Uh, what they had to do is, first of all, calculate what the mistake was. And so we helped them with that. My analytics company helped them with that. And, and that was a fun project, I should, I should say. Um, it wasn't big um, dollar amounts. It was, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a penny here and a penny there in cases. Or, you know, it was, it was rounding errors. But these rounding errors accumulated. And it was more about the the interest rate dates that were kind of the marketing of, of services wasn't actually tied into the, uh, the actual calculation. And there was a mismatch on those dates and hence why these problems started to cumul- you know, become cumulative. Yeah, okay. And they had to write to every single one of the customers that were affected and say, we believe we've, we've mischarged you and therefore we have to refund you. And in some of these cases, it was like you know, pennies, um, but they had to do it by law. And I think we, it's not too far-fetched to, see, to think that we might see the same thing. And I could imagine a future world where you get a, an email notification saying, hey, you were overlooked for that job application two years ago because of some bias we found in that algorithm. And, we have to interview you now. And well, maybe not that, but maybe, maybe there's some sort of compensation or maybe there's some sort of... But I, I think notification is certainly um, one step that's needed. 
Anyway, let's um, let's talk about some of the other episodes. Well, I think that it ties in nicely with the regulation episode that we had with Tom and the regulation that is starting to crop up. And one thing that I... There was one mind-blowing moment for me when we spoke with Tom. And that was when he said, yeah, look, the one... I can't remember which one it was, but one of the regulations that are being proposed right now, they want to level the playing field with the these big gatekeepers, as he mm-hmm. called them, which are mm-hmm. the Apples and the Googles and Facebooks of the likes. And one way to do that is by making it so they don't have, they're not the sole owners of your data. And I instantly just cringed. It was like, wait a minute, you're trying to implement a regulation that's going to make my data more accessible? Is that what I just heard? Is, did I hear that correctly? And, and so he went on to explain like, yeah, that's the biggest problem that we're grappling with right now is that how can you have a startup come and actually cause some disruption if it doesn't have access to the data and data is the new currency? And so we want to see if by making this data more available, is that going to create more innovation? Do you re- I don't know if you remember that part or not. Yeah. So I, I, I'm really grateful to Tom and um, and, and his organization, BCW, for having him on, on the show. Because um, when we interviewed Paul um, McDonnell in season one, uh, there was a lot of messages um, uh, to me and the team uh, from people who said, well, uh, isn't regulation still quite far off? You know, there's been a lot of talk about regulation of AI and data and things, but isn't that a long way off? And the truth is, it's not as far off as we 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 might think. And actually, the other thing we've we've heard from people is saying, well, surely this is all addressed with GDPR. If we if we're GDPR compliant, we've got nothing to worry about here. I guess those are the sort of the two themes that we heard. And the truth is that. Um, uh, European, the last, uh, this current European Parliament has made it very clear that they are going to intervene into the tech industry in a big way. And so the legislative uh, intent was that a year and a half ago. Um, Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, president, um, you know, she famously said the first 100 days we're going to regulate AI, which was um, pretty ambitious and hasn't happened yet. But um, what yeah. they did manage to do is they did manage to get a position paper out um, and, a, and then a consultation that started last year. Um, and so there's a lot of noise, you know, February 19th uh, last year, uh, 2020, there was a lot of noise about Europe's digital future, where a lot of these um, future regulations were sort of laid out. And me and people like me were were trying to kind of understand what does this mean for the tech industry? Um, and for our clients in the tech industry, what, what do we need to help them with? Um, and now what we're seeing is we're seeing the kind of baton pass from... European Commission, which is a, a very odd thing in European, um, the way the European uh, institutions work is that the the kind of the Parliament doesn't propose law; it's the Commission that proposes law. So, um, so the Commission passes on the baton with like draft legislation, which then goes to the political process to then debate, um, and it tends to take a while. But this baton pass is now happening, and what we saw um, at the end of November, beginning of December. Um, three pieces of regulation being passed across from the Commission to the Parliament. 
and they're the Data Governance Act, um, which is really about um, sharing of data, um, pub- sharing of public data across public institutions. So things like health, transport, etc. Um, um, and the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. Um, and the next piece of this jigsaw is going to come into play uh, in about six weeks from now. We're expecting to see uh, the AI regulation um, uh, draft. Um, uh, I'm told sometime late March, early April, um, although these things might leak early. Um, hopefully they do, and we can get a sneak peek into what's going on. Um, and so I think GDPR times six is, is like what, what I would suggest. Uh, there's, there's also proposals around um, data sharing, which we're expecting to see later in the year, and data spaces, which and, they, and this will force, I think, a level of interoperability across certain industries. Um, I think there's two things. And my takeaway from Tom's interviews, there's two things. One is to really try and rein in some of the kind of most outrageous anti-competitive behavior um, or, or exploitative behavior from, from some of the tech companies. And that can only be a good thing. Um, um, uh, and the second thing is about trying to help European companies um, compete more. Uh, 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 and I think you know, they are aimed at trying to help um, Europe's um, tech industry try to compete. But I think that feels like a longer a longer shot because um, certainly as we sit here today in 2021, uh, Europe doesn't really have a tech industry in the same way that the United States or China does. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are people listening who will be deeply offended by that statement. But the truth is, Europe you know, doesn't have something that can truly compete on the same footing as the United States and China. Um, and but, but there are certainly those like Thierry Breton, the, the trade commissioner, uh, or internal markets commissioner, or whatever, whatever he's called, um, who are really keen to, uh, to to change that and to fix that. And they talk a lot about digital sovereignty, the idea that we can start to build a, a community within the European Union of tech companies um, uh, that are European tech companies and can start to compete with the Amazons, the Googles of the world. So, um, so this is big. This is a big deal, um, all these things. And um, I think it's, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's not, not necessarily all fully fleshed out, not all maybe fully worked out in detail. Um, but I think um, we're, we're going to see some big changes. And for those of us in the UK, um, you know, just by simply the proximity to Europe, um, we're, we're going to be affected by this. And Tom spoke about the Brussels effects, which is yeah, how, exactly. because Europe's such a big economy, 40, 450 million people, um, for a tech company like a Google or an Airbnb, um, you know, this the Digital Markets Act is is going to force you to change potentially some of how you operate, and so for a smaller economy like the UK with only sixty million people, um, it kind of makes sense to kind of probably uh, you know apply European rules to the UK and maybe other places as well, and have sort of a smaller set of rules to manage. And so for other jurisdictions like Australia or South Africa or you know states in the United States, we'll probably see them copy uh, some of these legislative proposals from the European Union, because that's what we've seen with GDPR. We've seen it being copied across the world in different places. Yeah. Copied, but tweaked, um, I, I was saying. Yeah, the, it's, the second iteration, uh-huh. it's been evolved. and Evolved, evolved. You take out some of the, the not-so-interesting pieces or not, the not-so-nice pieces, and you hopefully make it better on each iteration. Yeah. So, there was that one, and I know we're kind of running out of time, so I wanted to talk with you a bit about the conversation that I had with Sydney, and 
her take on on the state of affairs. I know you had some some things that you agreed with and didn't agree with. So talk to me about that. So um, so first of all, I I I, I, I really enjoyed the interview. And um, again, somebody from, you know, we've, we've had other guests that we've interviewed from other companies who've, who've only, um, you know, only been able to speak the party line, as it were, and not been able to kind of bring their own personality or judgment to the conversation. And, you know, and, you know, those interviews have, are still lying on the cutting floor, um, because, you know, ultimately, that's not going to be something which people are going to want to listen to. Um, Whereas I think the interview with Sydney Spotify um, was great because she, again, she really represented Spotify in a very in a in a very positive way, and um, I was personally really delighted to hear um, you know that somebody like her who so you know thoughtful about some of the questions was 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 running running these things. So I thought it was a really great really great interview. I guess. Um, I guess the challenge I had with, um, you know, she's she's running intelligent automation for Spotify, and so she's running, um, you know, the process uh, optimization and and an automation for the firm. And you know, you touched on this in a few times about, look, you know, is this not robots taking people's jobs? And um, she kind of pushed back and gave you the kind of classic answer. Um, and I think herein lies the problem. Um, and and I would love to have joined that interview because I think, you know, her and I could have had a, a friendly sparring on this point. Um, she talks about, you know, how in the Industrial Revolution, you know, we've we've invented technology before and people have been displaced, but we found new types of work and it's and it's all been great. And you know, now we've got all this sort of new jobs that we never thought about 100 years ago. And, you know, I, I get that. But the, the nature of the difference is, is that in the past we were building things, and, and she said this herself, you know, we're, we were making machines that can fly, we were making machines that can transport us faster than we can run ourselves, we build machines that can communicate further than we can shout. You know, in the past it was all superhuman capabilities we were building. But the very nature of what she's doing is she's replicating human abilities in machines. She's, she's taking our skills, the things that we are good at, the things that machines in the past weren't very good at, and we're encoding them in machines. And so there's a very, there's a category difference between automation of the past and technology of the past and technology of today. And so I think that means the risk of robots taking jobs and large numbers of people being displaced through tech is just um, significantly higher. Um, I'm not saying it's inevitable, but I'm saying it, the risk is significantly higher. And therefore, I think it's really important for firms like hers who are deploying robotic process automation software um, and, and other tools designed to make their workforce more efficient. It's really important um, for them to, I think, have a much more um, I, I, I don't want to use the word honest because I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting she was being disingenuous or, or, or dishonest. But I think, um, I think the problem is the risks of getting this wrong. Again, coming back to where we started the conversation today, you know, if, if um, when these things go wrong, uh, the, 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 um, the, the consequences are catastrophic. And, um, you know, storming of the Capitol was, was pretty bad. Um, you know, really pretty bad. <laughs> let's, let's not let's not gloss over that. Um, but I think you know, if we mm -hmm. start to see you know um, thousands um, or tens of thousands of people, let's not even go more extreme than that. There are other people like I think you've got Callum Chase coming up in a few episodes' time, who's who's much more extreme than me on this question of 
robots and automation and jobs. But if we, if we see thousands of people or tens of thousands of people displaced out of work with no realistic chance of, of reskilling and finding new work um, and then realizing that that's their destiny for their lifetime, um, and particularly if they're young people, particularly if they're people coming out of school, um, then I think we've got ourselves a really, really big problem um, because I think the fabric we have in society is very unforgiving yeah. um, uh, for those people. Um, and, and so therefore, I think that for firms like Spotify, and you know, Spotify are by no means you know, the only firm doing RPA. There's, you know, every big company is implementing RPA right now. It's a massive, massive field. Um, what's critical is that they have um, a much more proactive policy in terms of how they're helping reskill people, um, and also also helping have that long term conversation with with policymakers um, about how this is having an impact on society. And I think simply brushing the, the the question off of like, well, we're not making people redundant today. We're just giving productivity improvements, and we'll always create these new magical jobs and somewhere down the line. I think um, I think that is very dangerous. Is is you know glossing over the risks. And not thinking responsibly about the harms. Um, well, and, why do you um, feel like people, in in this example that you used, they're not going to be able to reskill, and especially the young ones? You said, why do you feel like they won't be able to go out there and reskill? Because I, I think I have a different opinion on that, just from my own trajectory, as you like to put it. Uh, a year ago, I couldn't even spell AI, but now um, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that. I knew you were going to mention that comment. <laughs> it was it was hilarious. It had me laughing. You can't spell very GDPR hard. though. That that's that is that is genuinely funny. <laughs> Every time it is genuinely funny. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the AI comment, but it was more it was more in response to the G, the G, the very slow GDPR that you get on a, on a conversation we had. Experience. Yeah, it's, it confuses the hell out of me. But anyway. <laughs> You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. Um, anyway, you know, me going from not even being able to spell GDPR or AI a year and a half ago to being knee deep in the machine learning operations world right now and yeah. understanding how that works and having a job that is around that, I am a little bit skeptical when it's like, oh, the reskilling isn't going to happen. Yeah. So you, uh, your story is wonderful, uh, and and I think what's wonderful about it is it's it's also truly inspirational for people because I learned how to spell. <laughs> not not yet, but <laughs> but you have you have become um, as i like to think of you as the PewDiePie of ai in in such a short period of time because you've you know you your other human qualities your other human skills your personality your charisma all those other things which um and you know you've you've thrown yourself at it and you you're you know truly an inspiration i think for people and i hope people who think about making a career move into ai uh, look at you know, you and people like you who've who've done that, um, or you know, to some me, I've I've come as a, from a nearly became a lawyer and I've become in tech. So, mm-hmm. I think there's uh, there's there's loads of great examples there of of people who've made it. What I think we should we should not lose sight of though is that there's there's also very lots of examples of people who don't make it, who don't manage to make that that shift. And um, I think the problem when we talk about the industrial revolution from a 2021 perspective is it was a very, very long time ago. 
And when we think about it, you know, it's, it's, you know, when I think about it myself, it's very simplistic, you know, in the old days, there were peasants, and they were kind of making things in cottages, and then we built factories, and then we then started building motor cars and having these, like, you imagine this sort of, you know, thing of America and the industrial um, heart of America producing steel and factories and products. And, you know, now we live in the world we live in today. Isn't it wonderful? And all these jobs that we have today, like, you know, AI auditing jobs and, you know, um, uh, you know, a conversation designer for for speech um, uh, to text um, chatbot systems. You know, these these would be unthinkable to those kind of peasant workers uh, 200 years ago, um, and that's true if you take it from a kind of uh, a looking purely at, at, at the 200 years compressed into three sentences. But the truth is that during that time, the social unrest that happened was of a magnitude which most of us today have just forgotten about. And it was that social unrest, it was the levels of poverty in places like London. London, you know, the, probably the richest city in the world in the 1840s, yeah. um, had over half of its population living in absolute squalor. And it was those conditions that gave rise to, to Marx and Engels, who, whose writings led to the very worst, or some of the worst that happened in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, and why do, did people take to violent revolution, coming back to what we started the conversation with? Because they were so fed up with their lot, they saw no alternative. When, when perhaps you feel that there's, there's nothing to lose, you might be willing to take the ultimate roll of the dice and put yourself in harm's way in order to make, make for change. And I think that, that's really what, what happened in the early 20th century. We saw, um, you know, we saw... Uh, we, we saw revolution in, in, in the absolute sense of the word, word caused by ideas which were 60, 70 years old, um, which were from a position where I'm sure Marx couldn't have imagined another way out of it. And so I think that's the warning lesson from history. Here in 2021, we now know we're going to displace a lot of people out of work. Do we just let them figure it out for themselves? Um, or do we try to maybe slow down some of the automation and think this through in a really careful way to make sure that like no one is left behind or as few people are left behind as possible? And for me, that's the prudent course. You know, I hope that you know um, humanity is here 500 years from now and a thousand years from now, and I hope we look back at this time um, and and. Um, and 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 don't analyze too many of the the big mistakes. Um, but the, the the challenge I think for society is is that if we get this wrong, it, it, it is existential. We, you know, we've seen. I think hopefully we've seen enough examples now of what social unrest can do. You know, certainly in France, the Yellow Vest movement. You know, it, it you know a lot of destruction, a lot of harm. That's probably like a, a level one or a level two on the social unrest scale. You know, capital riots probably a level two on the social unrest scale, and maybe a level three even. You know, what about level four, level five? And I, what I worry about, my my father-in-law's a, 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 a truck driver. Um, you know, lov lovely guy. Um, end of his career, he's probably got ten years of driving trucks to go. Um, but if he was made redundant tomorrow um, because of self-driving trucks, um, what would he do? Um, you know, he's the sort of person who would probably find another way to make a living. But what about all of his other colleagues? And what if he was 20 years younger, 30 years younger, 40 years younger? Um, that's what I worry about. And so I think the challenge there for, you know, 
Spotify don't have, you know, the people that work at Spotify are going to find new work um, for the most part or are going to find themselves retrained. But if you take Spotify and you multiply by all the other companies doing RPA, we're suddenly going to see vast swathes of people who were doing something today that they can't necessarily find, um, you know, a, a role for. And and my final point on this, and I, I don't want to labor this too, this too much, but... Um, you know, in in the in the in the eighteen forties, when Marx was writing, and he was looking at the, you know, he was living in I think Kentish Town area of London, which um, to anyone who's familiar with London, you know, today is a rather nice part of the city. <laughs> it's quite, it's gentrified, but it was an absolute shithole in the eighteen forties. Um, some parts of it still are. I, I used to live there, so I can, <laughs> I can say that. Um, but. Um, you know, people people were really, you know, uh, struggling and, and taking jobs which were, you know, menial and inhuman, mm-hmm. inhuman work because there was no alternative. If we look at where we are today in 2021, what is that inhuman work in 2021? Um, well, for a lot of people, that is content moderation for Facebook. Mm. You know, people who are sitting there every day looking at the most disgusting filth that human beings are uploading online and trying to decide whether it matches Facebook's content policy or not. Um, that is an inhuman. And so it's those people, you know, they will be put out of work by machines, hopefully, very quickly, because that is not the sort of work that humans should be doing. Um, but, you know, how would they then react? And if, if one of those people start, you know, is, is of the intellect that Marx was, and starts to advocate a different type of society where we don't have some of these problems that we have today because they see no other way out of it. Maybe that person, maybe their blog, will spark revolt or revolution 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And, and, and it's those are the things that I, I worry about. And it might sound far-fetched, and, and I think it would sound a lot more far-fetched a year ago. Yeah. But I think it's, it's um, you know, we've got to be really careful. And if, and if the theme of episode, sorry, it's theme of season three, for me, was maybe let's slow down innovation in order to um, just put some better controls in place. And really, it does that matter too much if we if we do? And I think it doesn't. The guardrails. Um, the guardrails. I know you've got to go, D. I, I don't want to keep you all day. One one last thing. We should definitely yeah. just quickly touch on Dan because most episodes that we have. I listen to them and, 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 and wish I had a pen and paper because I can think of all the kind of ethics challenges that might exist with what they're doing. Um, and, but then there was Dan. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was just wonderful to hear uh, uh, an episode where, honestly, I couldn't think of, of, of anything I would suggest that they might want to do differently. Um, you know, to use technology in a way to help people, you know, through mental health difficulties, which is uh, uh, you know a, a, an issue that's growing uh, in, in its profile and, and people's awareness of it, but still not mainstream sufficiently mainstream enough, and still too much stigma around it. To be using technology in, in, in a way, but also to be using it in a way in such a respectful way, in such a thoughtful yeah. way, and to really be thinking in the terms of not exploiting people, making sure that um, people are free to use what, what platform they want to use, um, not collecting data for the sake of it. I. I I think, you know, people who are, want a case study of how to deliver tech in the right way, they should listen to that episode and and speak to Dan. I thought that was great. I thought that was really great. Yeah, he was a joy to interview. And really, I there is a lot of ways that it could go wrong and he could do it 
incorrectly, but it was nice to see that he actually had thought about all of these problematic areas. So I was going to say before you jumped onto the Dan topic that if anyone wants to listen to more of your your rant on the <laughs> robots taking over and taking our jobs, you have a TED talk on that, don't you? So yeah, that, we'll... that wasn't a rant. I mean, the TED the TED talk was hopefully a, I I did get some hate mail from that, but I oh, um, we should talk about that sometime. <laughs> but um, that was hopefully a hopeful. And to and to, to Sydney's point, she got very close to to making this point herself. I think. You said, like, how do you decide, like, uh, I can't remember exactly the question, but you were trying to find, like, what work is okay for a person or what work is not okay. And, and I, I call that human touch. And that, that came from some research I did a few years ago uh, working for a bank. And I think the way that we need to define this is we need to start to look at the jobs that we have, the tasks that we give people, and say which of these things are desirable for a human to do. In fact, which of them, which of them is it? It's like it's important that a human does that. And I think if we start to think, yeah, and and maybe not fulfilling necessarily only fulfilling, but also um, the essence of it uh, is important for, uh, for for the other person. Like like caregiving is, is is an example. Like if you're as a doctor, it's the bedside manner, it's the it's the interhuman, interpersonal that I would argue is probably the most important thing. It's not just diagnosis and knowing what to prescribe. It's also that human reassurance. And I think if we just find those things, distill them and say, those things machines should never do, um, then we might look at this whole automation question in a very different way. Um, so that's what my talk was about. Yeah, um, and you'll also know that you're, if you're going into being a caregiver or if you're going into that uh, field, your job is safe. Right, you don't have to worry that hey, maybe yeah. there's going to be some robots that are created in 20 years and they're going to be doing this because we've said that this is off limits. This we need a human to do, and and, and we haven't we haven't reached that agreement, and that's the problem. Mm -hmm. I saw uh, maybe a year ago there was this very horrible story about um, a, a terminally ill patient who was told they were going to die by uh, a machine. In fact, it wasn't by a machine. It was through a robot that had a view screen. And it was a doctor, I think, telling the patient through the video screen that they were going to die. Um, and the robot kind of went from bed to bed and told, you know, gave the diagnosis. So I think it wasn't quite the headline that it, it seemed. But again, you know, should that have been a conversation that was mediated through a touchscreen or should that have been a person coming to the bed and holding the person's hand and talking them through what was going to happen. I, I know what I think the right answer to that is, and I, I'm sure most people listening will agree with me. Well, then we really need you to get define down, those things. Yeah, and so this is where I am starting to try and be realistic about things uh, because there's a lot of factors that go into that as to why you can't have a doctor for every one of those patients, right? Because there's not enough doctors out there potentially and there's more sick people than we have uh, we have staff for and it's the same argument kind of I, I hear a lot it goes back to like yeah we need we want to create this uh, scenario we want to be very utopian about how things get done but when the rubber hits the pavement 
maybe it's just not possible. And I think a lot about this in tech and the there's a lot of non-diversity in tech when you're hiring in tech, right? Like mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of women that are coding and you don't have a lot of people that are of any other race besides white people. Uh, and so you get to this place where everyone thinks that, yeah, we want diversity in tech. We all can agree that that's great. But then what happens is there's just such slim pickings that that is not actually a reality. Does that make sense? Like I've been, I've been pondering over this quite a bit because you get the startup that's looking for a diverse team and they go out there and they're interviewing women and they're interviewing men. And it just turns out that there's not as many women to interview. So how can later they, they either have to make the choice. All right, we're going to do the, we're going to hire someone who is a woman and maybe they're uh, not the best cultural fit, or maybe they're not the best uh, person for the job, but you know what we want, we're very firm on this. We want the diversity or they're going to keep hiring people that are all looking the same and thinking the same going from the same universities. So I don't know, maybe I'm completely wrong about that, but that's something that I, I've been seeing and it's like, oh, there's a bit of a dilemma and it's nice to think euphorically, which I personally think, yes, we need diversity and we want that. But then when it actually comes down to it, you see in the job field, if out of every 100 people that you interview, you have only 10 that are women, then how can you realistically say that you're going to have a, a, a diverse team? And then not to mention that Google and Facebook and everyone are cherry picking all of those because they also want the diverse team and they can pay them whatever they want. Yeah. So, look, it's not one of those things which you can solve overnight. But, I mean, one thing we can all do differently very quickly or immediately is making sure that the organizations that we're building are as inclusive as possible and welcoming as possible to people who uh, are from different backgrounds and uh, and accommodating to to women throughout their careers, um, to mothers coming back into the workforce. I mean, there's so many things we can do at many different parts of, of someone's career path. And so as an employer, as an entrepreneur, someone as building someone, building an organization, I, I, I think... I think very carefully about that all the time. Um, and um, But there's also something that organizations can do. Um, eight years ago, um, I used to run a data analytics company uh, called BIPB, and we partnered with an organization called the STEMETS, which I'm sure still exists. And that organization um, went into schools and um, taught girls and young women um, uh, uh, tech and we ran some hackathons um, and we supported them um, and you know it, it struck me the other day that you know that was eight years ago and some of those girls and young women will be soon entering the workforce and so you know we will have had you know the impact that we try to create we will be having soon if that makes any sense like eight years later so there's a delay in these things but I I, I you know really believe um that you know, you can't uh, as as a tech organization, uh, you 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 can never do uh, 
you know, you can never do too much in that in that in that regard. Um, but unfortunately, I mean, I think some, it's easier for some of the big companies. They've got bigger budgets. They they can um, they can do this and and get a lot more um, recognition for it and and marketing benefits from from this. And um, and and you know, that's some sometimes I think kind of the tech for good stuff they do maybe outweighs some of the not so good tech stuff they do. Yeah. Um, but I think we've all got to do that. We all of us in the tech industry. Um, need to do this, but I mean, Hannah. Just the last thing, I guess. You know, Hannah, um, Hannah Curtis, and her sister Priscilla. Um, you know, Priscilla. You know, she's 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 moved into crypto and and blockchain. You know, from having been an actress. I mean that, and and so she's she's made that leap mid mid career um, because of COVID and necessity. Um, but you know, Hannah um, Hannah used used to work with me, and so you know, I, I know her quite well, and she. Uh, you know, she's definitely been an advocate for um, for for for, um, for for STEM and and um, gender equality, and um, you know, and I think it's been something that she's been passionate about through her career. Um, the 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 fun thing I think about her interview, apart from your t- you know your tips on money laundering, which I thought were quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody said. Oh yeah, so, so you've got some your money eyes lit up. So how do I launder money again? That that would be really interesting. But Uh-oh. um. The crazy thing about crypto and blockchain and Bitcoin, and you know, again, we're a few days after Elon Musk announced that Tesla are now getting into, you know, they bought what one and a half billion dollars of Bitcoin or something, um, uh, and so that's helped Bitcoin rise in value. Um, the crazy thing about that whole space, the ethics question, and I should have written this to you before you interviewed them to ask, is about is the energy cost. Um, uh, you know, crypto crypto is really interesting, and and Bitcoin particularly so because it's just the biggest um, cryptocurrency and has the most liquidity. And uh, and I think as a project, it's a fascinating project. But the the proof of work, the kind of the math, the math, the, the kind of the fancy maths that goes on in order to make sure that it's um, safe uh, and secure. Um, you know what? What people are doing is they're just turning, they're burning electricity and turning mm-hmm. it into that fancy maps. And Bitcoin is now at such a size that the amount of electricity that's that's being consumed by the Bitcoin network is 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 really quite significant. And um, I I don't know the exact number. Please, some fact check this for me. Um, but I think it's approaching towards one percent of the world's energy is. Um, is consumed by cryptocurrency um, transaction mining. Wait, so isn't that ironic? Elon Musk, who is all about the <laughs> energy. That's, and, the, that's the story. No. <laughs> that's the story. Uh, and, so, and, and for, for, for Tesla, which is actually seen by many people as an ESG strong company, because you know Elon has done more than almost anyone else to move the planet to a zero carbon green, clean air future. So, you know, kudos to the guy. I mean, he's a lunatic. Um, he's probably going to tweet that I'm a pedophile for me saying that he's a lunatic. I'm, I'm going to get sued now by Elon. <laughs> but he, he's, he's done a great service to the world. Um, uh, but yes, the irony of Tesla buying Bitcoin is, is, is not lost on me, that's for sure. Um, and I wish, I wish, I wish, um, maybe we'll have to get somebody else from the crypto world involved. But I thought the tour of the dark the tour, that's the T-O-U-R, the tour of tour was fascinating. Um, yeah, and, I also um, that. Uh, I, th- I thought it was a really good episode. So uh, Amazing. Charles, I think we got to cut it here. 
I yeah, could talk to you all day, but I think that is the time that has been allotted for this more chat. And more. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again. Have man. a good weekend, buddy. I'll um I'll speak to you again soon and looking forward to season four recap. See you later. All right. Take care.